We are in our third week with this topic of the Trinity, and I want to do just a very quick overview, if you don't mind, of where we've been. In week one, we learned that God is not a simple one, that He does not exist in solitary community, that He is not alone Himself. That's really significant. Rather, we saw that God exists as a complex one. He exists as a oneness of plurality, that God exists in community, in a community of triunity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are one in essence and three in persons. And last week, I began to ask that all-important question, the so what, right? What's, that, what's the relevance of that to my life? And I had said last week that the answer to me is everything. It has everything to do with my life. It has everything. To, it's at the heart of what our understanding of who God is. It's the center of our faith, not only what we believe, but how we should practice, which is going to be my emphasis today is on that practice, that the very fabric of the, the fabric of the universe is Trinitarian in nature. And that this question, so what, it's that the Trinity really is the key to all of life. Um, I referenced these last week, but they're so good I'm going to do them again. St. Augustine said, in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or discovery of truth more profitable. Actually, next week I'm going to talk about the beginning of that, but that focuses on that last part. Or as Dallas Willard said, a shortened version from last week, the advantage of believing the Trinity is not that we get an A from God for giving the right answer. It is that we can deal much more successfully with reality. And so I I just really want us to see that this teaching truly has profound real-life impact, impact very much so. And so the next few weeks, I want to flesh that out on how it affects not just my life, but it affects this body, especially the next two weeks, how this affects this body. Um, last week, we saw the supreme significance of 1 John 4.16 in our understanding of the Trinity, that God is love. Um, so significant, a text that we learned from that, that love is what God is in His essence, in the core of His being. He is love. Um, God is a being of perfect agape love. That's what we learned from that text. And if you remember, love implies communion between persons. persons. It presupposes relationship. And so what that tells me is what stands at the center of the universe is shared life. What stands at the universe is shared life. And if you remember, I said last week, like, seven up the uncola. And last week I didn't have the image, but I thought I would have one this week. I actually looked it up, and there it is. By the way, can you tell what decade that comes from? 70s, pretty obvious. Can I show you the 80s version of that? That was much, much better, much improved, not as colorful, but pretty cool. But like seven of the uncola, that what we have been learning is that God is the unsolitary God. He's the unsolitary God. Uh, yeah, I won't, never mind. That's something from last week. I won't go there. He, he is, here's what we learned, that he is inherently relational and personal. That's what's inherent in him. He exists eternally in loving community, that the triune God of Father, Son, Holy Spirit lives in eternal fellowship of perfect love and delight. That's the God that we worship. And here's why last week I said this is so significant, because of love and relationship. If that's what lies at the center of reality, the center of the universe, what that tells me is, is that love and relationship and community truly are the most important things, right? And I talked last week about how that really rings true with me. And that's why when God created mankind, He created them in community. From the very beginning, He hardwired relationship into us. And community is at the core of who we are because it's the core of who God is. And that's why God's in the business of creating community, why Jesus says, I will build my church. 
I will build my church. He's in the business of creating community. And so here's what I want to get to this morning, the next two weeks, that when we live well in community, when we live well in community, we image him, sorry, we image him well when we live well in community. And so that's kind of where we've been thus far. So this morning, I want to state a very important truth that flows from all of that, and it's this, that God is the model community. He's the model community for all of humanity, but especially for us who call ourselves the church and who attend 12th Avenue. And so my question is, is what does this divine community look like? What does life look like inside of the Trinity? I don't know if you've ever asked that. I want to spend the next couple weeks delving into that, um, into this divine community. And I really want to focus this week on one particular aspect of that. But when we think about life in the divine community, do you think, um, do you think there's any backstabbing in that community? Do you think in that community they have arguments over who is the greatest? Do you think they fight over who's going to get their way in that community? Do you think they ever get jealous of each other and territorial in that community? Do you ever think in this community they ghost each other? By the way, if they did, you know what they would call it? They would call it the Holy Ghost. I want you to know the Bible speaks to the life within the Trinity and several different aspects, one that I'm really going to hit today. And I even want to ask a larger question today, which is this, is God's new community. How ought we in the church to live and interact with each other? In light of that community, how are we to interact with each other? So, you ready to jump into this? I'm very excited. I've been waiting for weeks to talk about this. Um, In a book entitled The Holy Spirit, Frederick Dale Bruner wrote an essay called The Shyness of the Spirit, and I want to quote him. He said this, one of the most surprising discoveries in my own study of the doctrine and experience of the Spirit in the New Testament is what I can only express as the shyness of the Spirit. What I mean here by shyness is not the shyness of timidity, but the shyness of deference, the shyness of a concentrated centering of attention on another. It is not the shyness such as we often experience of self-centeredness, but it is the shyness of other-centeredness. And I would add, it's the shyness of agape love. And I want to show you what he's talking about. So turn to the Gospel of John, the fourth of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. It's John's eyewitness account, fourth gospel. John chapter 15, if you would turn there with me. On your phone, you can go there. Um, If you don't have either of those right now, I'll have some of these up on the screen, but turn to John chapter 15. And we're going to be in verse 26. So I want to show you why he says that about the Spirit. So in John 15, 26, Jesus says this. When the advocate, and by that he's referencing the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, when he comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. He'll testify about me. Now, for me, just across the page in John 16, I want you to look at verses 13 and 14. And here Jesus says this. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will, re- from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. I want to illustrate this reality to you. Um, I told you a couple weeks ago that I was told by a pastor if I preached on the Trinity as my first series, I'd get fired. 
And, you know, just in case that might happen, I've been working on other skills. So if I were to lose my job, I know what I'm going to become. I'm going to become an illustrator of children's books. Can I show you my skill at this? Look at this. Pretty impressive, huh? Okay, there's Jesus. And I want to show you what this deference of the Spirit looks like, okay? Imagine I'm the Holy Spirit. Look at Him. Pay attention to Him. Listen to Him. Learn from Him. Follow Him. Be preoccupied with Him. Worship Him. Be devoted to Him. Serve Him. Love Him. Give your all to Him. To Him. Does that make sense? That's what this shyness of the Spirit is. It's this other-centered deference to another. Other-centered deference to another. But here's what's really cool. Because if you begin to dig into the Gospels, you soon discover, much to your amazement, it's not only true of the Spirit, it's also true of Jesus. Um, how He related to His Father. So, we're in John. Turn back to chapter 5. A few pages to John chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 16. I'm going to read some of this in a minute. I'm going to show you the key verse on the screen when we get to 19. But verse 16. So, and, and, and let you, just to let you know, Jesus has just healed a cripple who was unable to walk. He just did this healing. Verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but... He was even calling God his father, and by doing that, he was, he was making himself equal to God. Powerful passage. But verse 19 is really where I want to focus. Verse 19, Jesus then gave them this answer, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. In John six thirty-eight. Jesus says this, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In John 5, 30, Jesus said, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. John 14, 31, Jesus said, the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly, I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. He was days away from his crucifixion when he said in John 12, 27, and 28, these words, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. And then when the heat really got turned up a couple of days later, and he's hours away from his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion, Three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked the Father to let him avoid the cross. May, Lord, take this cup away from me. But only to utter in Matthew 26, 39, those profound words of deference, yet not as I will, but as you will. And that's why in John 17, 4, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. But I want you to know, it doesn't just stop there. Jesus not only shows deference to the Father, but he is shy he shows deference to the Holy Spirit. Turn to Luke chapter 4. So we're in John. The next gospel back is Luke. That's his eyewitness account. Turn to Luke chapter 4. 
We're going to start in verse 1. And there in Luke 4, 1, it says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Mark in his gospel says he was driven by the Spirit. Driven by the Spirit. Now drop down to verse 18. Speaking in his hometown of Nazareth, at the launch of his ministry, here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then towards the end of his life, and to me what is an act of major deference to the Spirit, rather than him just hanging around the scene, he could have stuck around for a long time, continuing to do his ministry. He says in John 16, 7, he says this, very truly, um, here we go, very truly I tell you, it is good for you that I'm going away. You want me to go away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So amazing. Jesus not only defers to the Father, but he defers to the Spirit. So then what about the Father, right? When a lot of people think of God the Father, they think of an old man who's kind of curmudgeonly, right? Sits around with a scowl on his face, never quite happy, the big heavy, right? So would it surprise you to learn, too, that the Father is shy and shows deference? I could show you in numerous places where it talks about His deference to Jesus. I want to show you four, and they're going to be on the screen. In John 3.35, Jesus said, The Father loves the Son, and he has, placed, he has placed everything in His hands. He's placed everything in His hands. In John 8.54, Jesus said, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father is the one who glorifies me. In John 5, 22 to 23, Jesus said, The Father judges no one. He's entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Wow. The Father shows the same kind of deference that Spirit and Son show. Now turn with me to Matthew. So go back to the first gospel in the New Testament, chapter 17. Matthew 17, we're going to be in verse 1. The scene is the Mount of Temptation. And it's the second time in the Gospels that the Father speaks audibly about the Son. So starting in verse 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. That's his inner circle of three we talked about last week. That's Jesus' table, okay? And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. And Peter, who always has to say something, right? Don't you love this guy? Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, we'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and we're going to do one for Elijah. I mean, essentially what he's saying is like, whoa, this is awesome. Moses and Elijah are here. Like, can we get some selfies with these guys? And then after that, we'll raise some money, and we're going to build a cabin to each one, the Elijah cabin, the Moses cabin, and Jesus, you'll get one too. And we're just going to hang out up here, forget the rest of the world. This is where I want to be is with you three the rest of my life. And then it all 
than all that crucial verse 5, which I'm going to have on the screen. While he was still speaking, so even while he was speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. I, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then continuing in verse 6, When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, and he said, Get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Just Jesus was there. Just Jesus. But that verse 5, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Here's how I see the difference here. When Jesus was walking the earth, he was the visible incarnation of the Trinity, right? Of the triune God. He was the one that you could see, hear, and touch. And the Father easily could have said, hey, listen to him, but listen to me too, right? I'm still here. You can't see me. Remember, I'm the one who planned all of this. I'm the one who sent him. But he didn't. He's just shining the light on Jesus. That's all the Father is doing. If you've ever been to a play or a Broadway play, that's what the people in the back do, right? The light and sound people. Is they're there to shine the light, to give sound to the ones on the stage. It's what our tech team does. Bless you guys. They're back there. Nobody sees them. They're in the dark, but they're there for the people that are up on the stage. That's what the Father does for Jesus. So we learn, maybe to our amazement, that the Father is shy, that he shows deference to the Son. But I see another way in which the Trinity displays shyness. So we're in Matthew. I want you to go back to chapter 12. Flip back to chapter 12 of Matthew. We're going to be in verses 31 and 32. And just to set it up briefly, the Pharisees have just come up to Jesus and they have said to him, the power in you that gives you the ability to do miracles, it's Satan. That's Satan that's working in you. And here's what Jesus says in verse 31. I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against me, the Son of Man, will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And I know this passage raises a lot of questions, and I'm going to do a sermon on it because I get asked a lot about this. So let's not focus on the questions we have about this. Here's what I want to focus on this text. I think it's so, what I love about this text and find so fascinating is here was what Jesus is saying, is he's saying, you can diss me, but you can't diss the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? But it, it gets even better than that because it's not just Jesus being shy to the Spirit, it's also the Father. Because that's the implication of the beginning of this. That's the implication of this. When it says at the very beginning, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, including against the Father. And the Father's all in this, right? But you can't blaspheme the Son. So even the Father in this is shy to the Spirit. It's Father saying, you can trash me, but you don't dare trash the Holy Spirit. So here we have both Father and Son deferring to the honor of the Spirit. There's a word theologians use to describe this inner life of the Trinity. The inner life of the Trinity, I'm kind of hitting one aspect of it. It is perichoresis. Could you say that with me? Perichoresis. We get our word choreography from this. It's related. It's a Greek word that's used to describe the eternal dance of joyful love that goes on within the Trinity, to describe that interrelationships, the life of the Trinity. And among other things, when they talk about this, it speaks to the mutuality in the interactions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a mutuality of agape love, a mutuality of sacrificial giving of oneself for the good of the other. 
So we find in the divine community, here's what we find. Mutual respect, mutual self-giving, mutual service, mutual submission, mutual testifying, mutual glorifying. That's what's going on in the life of the Trinity. And there's multiple examples I could show you in the New Testament of this mutuality. Um, one way you can see it is in the deference, in the def- this deference, this mutuality, in the large number of times that we're told of different members of the Trinity who allow themselves to be sent by another member of the Trinity. The Father sends the Spirit and the Son who sends the Spirit who had sent the Son. And have fun figuring that out. But there's this self-sending going on, this self-being allowed to be sent. I want to show you one particular scripture that demonstrates the mutuality. It's in John chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. It's on the screen. When he, referencing Judas, it's the Last Supper, when he was gone, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him, and if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself. Do you see the mutuality going on within Trinity? Isn't that cool? That there's this give and take of sharing glory, this give and take of sharing glory. This Father, Son, and Spirit mutually love one another, and they mutually share glory with each other. That's why Roderick Loop says that self-giving love is the signature of the Trinity. I love that quote. This is the signature of the Trinity. And why Cornelius Platinga wrote that the Trinity is a wondrous community of divine light, love, joy, and what? Mutuality. Mutuality. I mean, every time I think about this, Even this week, as I'm delving into it more deeply, I'm like, wow. I stand amazed. The whole Trinity is shy. And over the years as I've read the New Testament, because I kind of, I've had my eye open to this, I have found no less than 50 passages that speak to the shyness within the Trinity. The Trinity is this loving, self-giving, other-centered community. They're not centered upon themselves. They're centered upon each other. They're bent on pointing to the others. That's their bent Focusing attention on honoring one another. Each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, pointing selflessly and faithfully to the others in a gracious circle of loving deference. None wants to have the limelight at the expense of the other. So what to me is so amazing about the Trinity is that Jesus is shy, the Spirit is shy, the Father is shy, the whole Trinity is shy. As no Platinga has written, At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life. The persons within God, they exalt each other, they commune with each other, but they also defer to each other. Isn't that awesome? Does it not like draw you to the beauty of who God is to learn these things about him, that this is his inner life? But I want you to know there is more that even catches my heart even more because this same spirit of deference, I want you to know it pervades all of what God does. It pervades everything that he does. It's not just in relation to himself that God shows deference, but it is in relation to humanity. It is in relation to us. And let me explain. Because when the triune God created that first man and woman, and when he created us, he gave them what C.S. Lewis calls the dignity of causality. In other words, when he created them, he gave them the ability to either accept his invitation to have deep relationship with his divine fellowship or to reject it. He gave them that ability to his face to say, I don't want you. He gave that ability to them. And he did this, I want you to know at huge risk, we'll get to this in a minute, a huge risk to himself 
that he did this. And as you know the story, they chose against him, right? And then comes for me even the larger act of deference than how he created them. That to these very people who, ex- who rejected that gracious offer of communion with the triune God, fellowship with that divine community, to those people, to that man and woman, to me, to us, okay? To those who thumb their nose at him, he said, I will do everything I can do to get them back, no matter the cost. I know this, John 17, 20 and 21, where Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, my prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am you, I'm in you, may they also be in us. Do you see that desire? May they be in us. And to this end, we see Father, Son, and Spirit unite together in the self-sacrificing ministry, the deference of bringing lost humanity back to themselves. And I want you to know, they do so at a high cost to all of them, all members. I once heard John Ortberg describe this cost. I have adapted it in my own words. But here's what Father says. I will offer my son whom I love beyond words. I will see him broken and rejected and killed. I will personally experience the broken heart of a father. How many fathers here? He knows the feeling of a father's broken heart. I who have known only perfect oneness and intimacy with him throughout eternity, I will take on the anguish of estrangement from him. This is the price I will pay to bring them back into fellowship with us. The son says, I'll leave heaven and I'm going to go to earth and I'm going to experience their pain and their suffering and their anguish in that very broken world. And I'm not going to go to be served, but I'm going to go to serve and to offer my life as a ransom for many. I will die on a cross. And I'm going to experience for the first time a God-forsakenness that has never been experienced in human history. I'm going to experience God-forsakenness for the first time. There's going to be a rift between me and my Father. We who have lived in perfect intimacy for all of eternity, there's going to be a rift on that day. This is the price I will pay to bring them back into fellowship with us. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to be poured out on earth in very silent, invisible ways. I'm going to offer to lead and to guide. I'm never going to exalt myself. I'm always going to point to the Son. But I do this knowing that for the most part, I'm going to be ignored and neglected. I will experience grief. I will be grieved and I will be quenched. I have never known grief all through eternity in this community, but I'm going to be grieved day after day, month after month, year after year, century after century, for thousands of years, I'm going to have my heart broken. 
the rejection of humanity. This is the price I will pay to bring them back into fellowship with us. All of this to bring us back into relationship with himself. This deference that the Trinity has shown for me, it's beyond my comprehension. It's staggering. Does it not bring you to your knees? How unfathomable it is, this amazing love. So I want us to just take a minute, and I want us to reflect on that. I want us to think about what he did in deference for us. And allow yourself to be drawn into the beauty of who he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to worship him. So just quietly, just let's close our eyes, let's give him our attention for a minute, and let's just worship him for who he is. I don't know how many of you know the song that Dave is playing. When I was working through this Tuesday and I had just written some of that stuff, I, I had to bow in awe. And this song came to my mind and I sang it and then I texted him and asked if he'd be willing to do it. Um, it's an old Maranatha song. It's easy to learn. Would you stand with me? If, if the, we're going to do it twice. If the first time you don't quite get it, just listen to my horrible voice as I, in great deference to you, am willing to do this. When you hear the shaking of my voice, it's not vibrato, trust me. Uh, it's not fun singing in front of people, bless you, who do. But I just want us to stand in awe of who he is in worship. So. Stand in awe, so amazed, totally changed by your presence forever. Every time I look into your eyes, I see a glimpse of what I've always wanted to be. Let me be changed. Let me be changed in your presence. We do it again.
you say amen to that? Okay, you may be seated. Twelfth, the Trinity truly is the essence of loving community. What, as we've been learning, but even this morning teaches me, is what lies at the core of reality is not an isolated, self-serving individual, right? But it is a community of humble, agape love, unconditional, self-sacrificing, self-giving love. That's what's at the center of this God that we worship. Um, and as such, he's the model of what it means to be human, what it means to live in a relationship, what it means to be in community. Not just for every human being, but especially the model community for us. The model for us. Early in the sermon, I asked the question, is God's new community, how ought we in the church, how ought we to interact and live with each other? I want you to know, 12, that's the model right there. He is our model. And that means that there ought to be a kind of shyness, an other-centeredness. There ought to be a loving, humble deference that marks all of our relationships, all of our relationships, but especially in this community, because we're the community of people who love and follow Him. We love and follow the Father, Son, and Spirit, and as we commune and abide in Him more, my life ought to be becoming transformed more and more like Him, and this is what my life ought to look like more and more is this sense of shyness and deference. That's why in Romans 12, 10, Paul says this, honor your brother and sister above yourselves. It's why in Ephesians 5, 21, he says, submit yourself to one another out of reverence to Christ. It's why he wrote some of the greatest words on this in the life of Jesus in Philippians 4, 3 to 8. And I'm gonna read it in a little bit of a different order. But speaking of Jesus, he says, Jesus, who being in his very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be clung on to. Rather, he made himself nothing, being made in the very, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, and not just any death, the worst death ever humanly devised, death on a cross. And so earlier in that passage, this is why Paul says, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, as your Savior and Messiah. And then he says before that, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each one of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The model community for how I'm to live my life in relation to you, how we're to live in relation to each other. I'm not going to go through all this, but I sat down this week and I just thought of all the different ways that I can live out and have selfish ambition and vain conceit and pridely elevate myself above others or trample upon the interests of others. I mean, there's so many ways if you thought about it, right? Having to have my way in every decision, always having to have my voice, my input given in everything, that if things don't go the way I like it, I'm going to pout a little bit or I'm going to do some things to undermine it, Right? The ways that, all the ways that I have to have my way, either outwardly or just, you know, kind of in a hidden way. You know, you think about family, hardest place to show deference, don't you think? Just thinking about that, not a lot of teens in here, but for the teens that are here, that we're called to show deference to our parents and a humility towards them. But parents, we're called to show deference and humility to our children. Since I've had grandkids, I've been exposed to or made aware of and enjoy Bluey. Don't know if you've watched Bluey. It's a great cartoon. It's more for parents than for kids. But one thing I love about Bluey is how many times the parents 
want their way with the kids, but then out of loving deference, they end up serving them. I just love how that shows. So parents, we live in deference to our children. We, we lead them, but we do so with deference, even as leaders that I need to take up the towel and serve if I'm doing that that we assume the best of others and not the worst of each other's, that we're not so easily hurt, that we don't nitpick every little thing that we don't like. There's just so many ways um, that I think this shows itself in my own life. And if you're a human like me, probably in your life, that's at the opposite of this. So here's my challenge, that we serve a God who exists in a community of love, humility, servanthood, shyness, loving deference. That's the God that we serve, that... If, and if that's at the center, if he's at the center of everything, and this is the reality of everything, then for me to live in a self-centered way, it's contrary to the core of who God is. Does that make sense? And that means that all the sins of self, all the ways in which we are self-obsessed, that we're self-serving, that we're self-seeking, self-glorifying, self-aggrandizing, self-promoting, self-preserving, that all of these sins, they dishonor Him and they besmirch His name. And in light of who He is, just to realize that to fail to live in humble mutuality towards each other, it's utterly unthinkable, okay? We still struggle with the sin nature, but it it really is utterly unthinkable. The kind of life, self-centered life that C.S. Lewis so profoundly says, calls, Um, just listen, that ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self, which is the mark of hell. Or as A.W. Tozer says, the widest thing in the universe is not space, it's the potential capacity of the human heart being made in the image of God. It is capable of almost unlimited extension in all directions. And one of the world's great tragedies is that we allow our hearts to shrink until there is room in them for little besides ourselves. A great tragedy of life. So, 12, let us live in the way of Jesus. Let us live in the way and the life of the Trinity, a life of loving, humble, other-centeredness. Because as Paul reminds us, I have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor him with how I live and with my body. So, I'd like to invite you to stand with me. I'd like you to close with me with a prayer. So, if you would pray with me. I stand in awe of you, O triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are majestic, and your greatness and power encompasses the whole universe. And yet among you, there are no struggles for supremacy, no manipulative games of one-upmanship, no power plays. I also stand in humility before you, for you are not only greater than I, but you are more humble. Your deference, your other-centeredness, Your self-sacrificing love brings me to my knees in confession of all the ways in which I seek to promote and protect myself. May your life be reflected in my life and in the life of our body to a much greater degree. Empower us this day to live lives of divine shyness and of loving deference towards each other. And to that, all of God's people said, Amen. And we pray that in the name of Jesus and the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit in whom I believe. And I did not make them, but they're making me and they should be making us. So can I pray? Father, thank you for this reality of who you are that you reveal about yourself in the Gospels in particular. 
of your loving deference to all the other members within, this, within the Trinity, the divine community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Lord, we just need you to so empower us because we still struggle. Though we've been set free from sin and that sin nature, it is still present. And we struggle every day with wanting to promote self. So Lord, help us to become more like you. Help us to abide in you so that we can become more like you. And Lord, may this church become a place in Aporia that we are known for our loving deference towards each other and towards the people outside of this body. And I pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, 12th, you are sent to live like your Trinitarian God, shy and living in deference to others.